Another big week in the emerging cricket world with League 2 fixtures, Dutch Super League action, plus women's one-day international status and qualification pathways announced. But first, a shout-out to our friends at Patreon. If you're passionate about cricket in the associate world and beyond, you can help us grow from as little as $2 a month by becoming an Emerging Cricket patron. To sign up, log on to patreon.com forward slash Emerging Cricket. As always, plenty to talk about on the Emerging Cricket podcast. Ah, oh, the Emerging Cricket Podcast, back again this week, live on Sport FM and around the world on your various streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple, Podbean, etc., etc. The list goes on. I'm Daniel Beswick. I'm joined by Nick Skinner once again. We are one member down with Tim <laughs> currently on his way to Brisbane. Stuck in customs, I think we're speculating. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at the time of recording, uh, we haven't been able to get in contact with Tim, who is travelling back from Port Vila uh, to Australia. We will be seeing him in the flesh very soon as well, which I'm looking forward to. But mm. Nick, privileged to have you with me to talk about the emerging cricket world for this week. How are things going? You uh, sound a little bit under the weather. How things in the household uh, yes run from it dread it covid comes for us all uh, i think it's finally caught up with me brooklyn tested positive a couple of days ago and i thought oh i've, I've managed to somehow avoid it despite living in a minuscule house but uh no finally my immune system was worn down and, and i think uh yeah that's that's what's happening right now so not feeling great but uh plenty of cricket to keep me entertained while i uh, snuggle up in bed and try and recover yeah, I was going to say the lemon tea would have been uh, in action for you while we, we've been able to watch plenty of Cricket World Cup League 2 and Super League Cricket, among other bits and pieces from around the world. We've been kept busy again this week. Let's focus with Cricket World Cup League 2 and stopping press here as another match has played out since we recorded this week with Nick and myself, the UAE falling to the USA in match four of the series. Uh, quickly going through the matches, the USA setting Scotland 311 to win, winning convincingly thanks largely to a Saurabh Netravalka Pfeiffer. Uh, Scotland then came back, set the USA 301 to win, won that game comfortably by 111 runs. And then friend of the show, Emerging Cricket Ambassador Kyle Kutzer registering his fifth one-day international century in Scotland. Successful chase against UAE, chasing down 215, winning that by four wickets and with two overs to spare. There have been plenty of talking points. Richie Barrington was in the runs. He made a century of his own. He's probably making a case for, for being the best associate men's batter in the world right now, and I'm sure we'll talk to uh, about that in a minute. Saurabh Natravalka I think surpassed Timur Patel as the uh, leading wicket-taker for the USA in limited overs cricket. Uh, that was from Peter Delapena, so I'm going to take that as gospel. We saw a new one-day international venue in Moosa Stadium, the 213th one-day international ground. Runs were on offer early. Uh, chasing was hard to come by, or chasing was hard to do in the, in, the, in the first two matches. But Scotland came back and chased well, albeit a, a smaller target in match three. Nick, we've been sort of waking up in the Sydney morning and watching probably the last hour to two hours of these matches as per the time difference in the schedule that we've got. So it's been good to watch matches wrap up instead of, I suppose, in, in other parts of the world, in Europe, perhaps we're watching matches that start at 7pm and not knowing the result until we wake up the next morning. So it's a little bit different. I'm quite enjoying it. It's been a good series and a new venue in Moosa Stadium. I think it's ticked every box so far. 
Yeah, I hate going to bed not knowing what the result is. You know, I always sort of go to bed thinking, oh, who's going to win? Who's going to win? So it's uh, it's it's kind of a good time zone, actually, to, to wake up and just have an hour left and you know, get the exciting bit of the game. But uh, yeah, uh, interesting to see Musa Stadium make its debut as a, as a one-day international venue. Uh, some good friends all making their way down there. PJ Huddles, PDP, of course, uh, a few others. Uh, notable fans of US cricket around at the stadium with a, a few hundred other fans. So that was nice to see. Uh, good result as well from the home team. Thrashed Scotland, really. Very convincing. Um, as you say, Netravalka, you, you can talk a bit about his bowling, but I was I was really impressed with Stephen Taylor's batting because kind of a talking point, you know, before the pandemic and, you know, over those two years where they weren't playing much, he really, I don't know, he, he, he was really out of sorts. And, and, you know, I was kind of in the camp of, of thinking he was maybe done or, or needed to take a long break. But it seems like the, the enforced layoff of the pandemic has done him good because the, the first two matches they played, he looked, yeah, really just those firm, confident movements that he has. You know, he's a huge guy and he has great timing as well. So he looked quite timid back in, you know, sort of around 2019, early 2020 and just like completely shot mentally, really. So something something seems to have reset or clicked. And yeah, he's just looking at him at the crease. He looks like a new batter. So that's ominous for, uh, for other associate teams you know a Stephen Taylor back in form is a destructive player um, yes Kotsa great friend of the pod uh, we, we all love Kyle so that was nice to see him uh, back in the runs he, he's been had a bit of a torrid time uh, the last year or so since since they um, they came back um, but uh, uh, Richie Barrington yeah um, he's, he's had a golden run really since coming back from the pandemic in September last year uh, 547 ODI runs at uh, 68.4 average and a, a strike rate of 82, which uh, in associate cricket, which is a bit sort of lower scoring, is is very good. And in T20s, um, 447 runs at, at 49.7 and a, a handy strike rate of 133. So he's... he's I don't know, he's mid-30s, so, you know, you'd think he'd be on the decline, but he's just getting better and better with age. Um, and I guess another talking point was we were wondering how Scotland would go and, and how this kind of... Um, it's an interesting surface, isn't it? Very, um, like, almost like a mirrored glass. Like, you can see the batter's reflection in the stream when <laughs> when they're facing up and, and the sun's at the right angle. Um, you know, seeing the batter's reflection in the pitch is, is kind of a strange... Um, yeah, I, I don't know what they're putting in it, but... Uh, yeah, very uh, interesting surface. And um, uh, yeah, Chris Sol as well stepped up uh, with the ball for Scotland, bundled out the tail um, in, in that second game and then took four for against the UAE to sort of derail a, a very promising start. I think they were about two for 130, cruising along with, with CP Rizwan and, and Richard Aravind doing their thing. So yeah, impressive stuff from Scotland who I, I sort of predicted would be the, the team to beat. Good effort from the USA to, to sneak a win off them. And yeah, Mark Watt not playing for Scotland, but Hamza Tahir filling in the left arm finger spin quota with uh, three very tidy spells, one for 32, none for 30. And one for 43. So, yeah, all up uh, a pretty good effort from Scotland, even though they did get ambushed in, in that first match. It's been refreshing watching big totals in, in League Two, which is almost the opposite of what it's like following one day international cricket at, at the level above in full mm. membership, where we're lamenting the flat pitches and not really seeing uh, bowlers will be able to work into their into their craft and huge scores of you know 320 to 340 350 being chased down and it it becomes a very formulaic game i find that league 2 is almost too far the other way where it's really difficult for league 2 batters to to set themselves up for big knocks but here at Moosa, and 
the wicket, it's strange. One of the only wickets that I can kind of compare it to just from the face of it, just looking at, at photos and, and the stream is uh, one of the wickets in the West Indies, especially in the in the early 90s when they were doing all sorts of different things to try and get wickets up to scratch. But it almost resembles Mars when it's <laughs> a little bit worn. Uh, it looks really flat. There's not a whole lot of green grass on top of it, but it's been conducive to some pretty good cricket. And I, I think, you know, whatever you do to, to get from A to B in terms of curating a good wicket, I don't think it really matters. And I think the proof is, is sort of in the pudding, what we've seen so far. I know that teams have struggled to chase it down. And I think the jury might, I might be giving it too much credit in that the jury's probably out. We'll need to wait to the end of this tri-series and probably the end of the next tri-series with the matches at the same ground, how the square holds up entirely but it's been good to watch some of the best batters sort of go about their business I mean no one's hitting it better than Richie Barrington at the moment at the associate level and yeah in 2022 before his last innings as we record where I think he was dismissed for 13 his average in 2022 was above 100 in one day international cricket which just goes to show how well he's seeing them and yeah just on Saurabh Netravalka and he does sort of sneak about his business I don't think many people when they think of top quality USA players or USA bowlers. I don't think a whole lot of people probably say Saurabh Netravalka. He's a former captain of the side as well, but I think that goes to show that the best asset that he does have is between his ears. He's not a huge mover of the ball, either off the surface or in the air. He's really good with his angle across to the right-hander, but his length is great, and he changes up his pace really well. There were times when the keepers were keeping up to the stumps, and he trapped a number of Scottish players on the crease, either LBW or Bold, sort of hitting the top of off stump. So... I think he's just a really crafty bowler and he's just someone that knows his game really well. And you can see that and you can see how effective he is for the US. Of course, he was the man in the middle affecting that run out when they beat uh, Namibia in World Cricket League 2 back in in 2019 to win that that heart stopper that was seen all around the world. So he's got the resilience as well when he needs to be throwing the ball in pressure situations. So... Good to see him flourishing. Uh, UAE were a little bit lax in the field. Kyle Kutzer was dropped twice, just, I think, in the 40s, and then just after he made 50. But the experience of him to go on and make the most of the opportunity and see his charges home only goes to show, you know, how smart a player he is. And he has shown glimpses of bringing that form, of emulating that form that we know he has back to the Scottish team. And it's just good to see him rewarded with a, with 100. I saw a, a Peter Della Pena tweet where he dropped his Man of the Match award and it broke into 100 pieces. So <laughs> he won't get a chance to, to take that home. So if anyone in Palin, Texas is, is good at repairing stuff like that, uh, give Kyle a call. But again, Scotland distancing themselves early in this tri-series from UAE and in well and truly above them in second place. I think they've almost locked up an automatic qualification spot for the Cricket World Cup qualifier already. 40 points, I think, looks almost like the magic number where Oman is at the moment. It'll be really interesting to see how they go about their final four matches of the cycle. But looking at it, it just puts a little bit of pressure on UAE just to make sure they continue the pace because they've got Nepal coming for a tri-series in the USA where they've got the chance to, to sort of make their money and they've got plenty of home series in the bank for themselves. And the same too with Namibia, they've got plenty of home series to go 
in the competition. So it's starting to get to the business end of, of League Two and, and we'll be looking forward to, to watching all of it uh, on ICC TV around the world, providing that the, the streams are up and mm-hmm. have enjoyed the banter, especially between Lenny and, and PDP over the course of this series. Oh, the dream team, yeah. They're just a little bit more relaxed, but they just get everything across well. And you've got to remember, you know, it's an eight-hour workday at One Day International, just like any other job. And you've just got to sort of move things along and, and the two of them together as well as the, the guests that they've had on the stream it's, it's been great and, and yeah just seeing the likes of PJ Hoodles in the crowd uh, Phil Milkey who's you know probably the greatest USA cricket fan there is and, and a number of other people turning out to Moosa Stadium it's been great to watch and uh, yeah to reiterate our first point long live Moosa Stadium and westernmost one day international cricket where matches finish in the uh, in the morning here in, in Australia and we can see the end of it let's talk about some other one day internationals that involve uh, uh, some associate members, well, one associate member in the Netherlands taking on the West Indies. Three Super League matches, of course. And again, stop press as we've got the update of the second One Day International. Uh, starts for Vikram Singh, Max O'Dowd and Scott Edwards, the latter two making half centuries, although the Netherlands bowled out for 2-14 with the West Indies chasing it down in the 46th over relatively easily. Uh, but again, we will reiterate that we are recording this after just the first uh, One Day International. But a couple of really telling stories. I thought Vikram Singh, and we'll, we'll talk about Vikram Singh probably a little bit more in the conversation, looking comfortable at this level, irrespective of him not being able to convert it into a half century, that first innings. We'll talk about that in a sec. Tejar Nidamanaru also making his debut for the Netherlands after a glittering season with Punjab Rotterdam. He comes via New Zealand as well. There's a bit of a New Zealand feel with Logan Van Beek and Max O'Dowd in the setup as well. They got off to a good start here, the Dutch. The rain didn't help them with the rain delay and and maybe just curtailing their momentum a little bit. We are still, I suppose, not bemoaning, but very much acknowledging that the batting isn't quite up to it just yet uh, with obviously a number of players not available. Van der Merwe, Ackerman, Tenderskarta's retired, the first two on county duty. A number of bowlers on county duty as well. Uh, no mandatory release, and we can talk about that till the cows come home, Nick. But I think they put in a performance that makes us think that they might be able to jag a win against a team like the West Indies. There's certainly enough ability there. Just a case of maybe some experience in, in pressure situations and just letting Shy Hope get away from in that first one day international. Yeah, I mean, they certainly did a lot better than I expected looking at the um, you know, the, the lineup there and Vikram Singh as you say just oh, so smooth at the crease. He he looks like he belongs, you know, and and the, some of those boundaries are just top quality cricket. Uh, and unfortunately, again, a kind of a bit of a soft dismissal, just kind of playing across, getting trapped in front and kind of nothing shot, you know, probably could have gone on with it. And, you know, with, with such a thin batting lineup, basically you need your guys like Vikram Singh to, to step up. Teja Nidamanuru, as you say, uh, impressive, interesting story. He's sort of a, a winding path to Dutch cricket. He, um, you know, born in India, uh, played a bit in New Zealand, uh, some some domestic stuff there, and then uh, moved over to the Netherlands uh, as well, as you say, at, um, at Punjab Rotterdam. So, yeah, one to watch in the future for the Dutch. I mean, honestly, they're batting stepped up, but the lack of penetration with the ball was really what got them because once the batters got in, you know, Shy Hope didn't really look like getting out. And, you know, they, they weren't too, you know, they, they were tidy. They, they didn't let them get too far away. They only... Uh, you know, got to the target with I think about ten balls to spare, but um, you know, three wickets down, it was it was pretty comfortable stuff, and yeah, just missing so many bowlers, like basically a, a full bowling lineup, 
was out and that's that's something you know if you take the the sort of the the four or five best bowlers out of australia they're going to struggle you know so you know when when you're talking about the netherlands it's it's really tough for them so yeah mandatory release uh, as as we've discussed in the past a uh, bit of a joke really um and i know the argument is that you know the county teams are, are sort of paying their wages, so you know they can't expect to get away too much. But yeah, at the same time, it's pretty disappointing that the ICC hasn't found a solution for getting the best players on the field in an ICC tournament. That you know the, the Super League is ostensibly an ICC tournament, and yes, we know it's it's kind of a, an overlay on the usual just bilateral series, but it is officially an ICC tournament, and you would think they could do better to to try and get the best teams on the park. And to kind of extend on that, England announced their squad for the Netherlands series and it was packed with good, probably close to their first 11 Mm. players. And whether or not they have the same wrangling issues trying to get out of county duty, I I, I seriously doubt it. So that's definitely something that it just means that the Netherlands are playing cricket a lot of the times with, with one hand tied behind their back. And again, if you were to put that first 11 on the park in that match yesterday in home conditions playing against a side that looked a little bit raw and a little bit green in the West Indies could have been a different result uh, and I, and again even with the side that they put out yesterday there's there's definitely enough there's definitely the makings of a very good side I'll talk about Vikram Jit in a little bit more depth in a second but again just looking at that side of Musa Ahmad and and, and Teja coming in Baz Delader in a few years time you know I, I can see this side being even even stronger and kind of taking the baton forward in Dutch cricket because this is kind of the next generation in in essence with so many players out you're throwing guys almost into the deep end early and just kind of hoping that it that it turns out okay and and to be honest the performances were, were, were quite good and to talk about Vikram Jit Singh in more depth, I think he is a classic example of for him to get better as a player, he needs to play more cricket at this level yeah, just sure. from a pure match practice alone because you could see he's got all the shots. Pace isn't an issue. You know, he's pulling Alzari Joseph and the other fast bowlers around, Anderson Phillip. He did it with ease. A couple of those square drives mm. and, and hooks and pulls that he played, he was so quick onto the line and length and just quick on on the ball and you can just tell that he's so comfortable with the pace on and technically is so sound just to execute that we know he's playing at his club home ground he worked a lot has worked a lot with Peter Boren and having Peter Boren in the commentary box talking about him providing that extra depth was good for the coverage but you can just tell that some of the shots that he plays are rewarded in a net session in that oh yeah that's a great shot bang Say you're playing kind of like the New Zealand series where he he gave a catch to deep third man in that New Zealand series earlier in the year where in the nets, that's a great shot. But it's a game management situation at that point where he has to manage, you know, how to play, how to manipulate the field. That comes with being able to play in the middle at the highest level, aka international cricket. And then watching him get out yesterday where he's just trying to sort of turn one around. I think it was Akil Hussain, maybe left arm orthodox to the left-hander, where he's tried to play it too square and he's been trapped LBW where he should be sort of nudging to, to mid on or even maybe through square leg if he does kind of roll his wrist. I think that's the next part of, that's the next dimension of Vikram Jit Singh's game where he will become a great, great player for the Netherlands at this level. I think once he does play 10 one-day internationals, 20 one-day internationals, makes you know half a dozen 50s, converts them into centuries, 
that management and that time in the middle will that will be amazing for his game. Uh, and that's just the next step. I think I don't want to say he's completely done with the Nets because no one is, but he's done everything he needs to do in those facets, in the technical facets, to move up to the to the added speed of of full member international fast bowling. He's done all of that. Now it's just a case of him managing and working out where he can hit one, where he can find one, where he can beat the fielders, how to manipulate the field. He's going to be a great player. You can tell it. You know the eye test. The eye doesn't trick you you know he's not he's not something he's not going to be if that makes any sense once he develops into that and he knows his game and and he knows how to yeah manipulate the field and manipulate the bowling attacks oh look out if you're an associate member trying to stop him because he could make thousands upon thousands of runs if he if he goes about his business the way we we sort of know that he can reach that's just the potential that he has and and you only have to watch it for you know we've been watching it on and off for what maybe two years through the under 19s qualifiers and some of the streams and some of the shots he plays into people talking about him in top class of cricket and then his move up into the international team yeah, you don't need to be a genius to work out that he's going to be an excellent player because it's just all there in front of you. It's just a case of, yeah, just that experience that you get playing at the next level that will seriously round him as a, as an international quality cricketer. Yeah, good analysis. I, I agree with what you're saying. And he just has that quality of, of time on the ball, which is something you, you can't really teach. That's that's just an, an intuitive part of batting. And, and the fact he has that so naturally uh, means, you know, the other stuff that you talked about, you know, it, it, he, he can get a bit bogged down if he sort of plays a couple of really nice shots straight to the fielder and, and gets a bit frustrated. And so that kind of stuff is more temperamental and uh, discipline related, which is something you can work on. Whereas, yeah, the fact that he can play these shots in the first place means he, he's got the raw materials. Uh, I think one more just little uh, sort of subplot there is um, Kesey Carty uh, making his ODI debut for oh, yeah, yeah. For, for the West Indies, which is interesting because he, he's actually from St. Martin, which is a, a Dutch island in the Caribbean. And as far as we're aware, he was eligible to play for the Netherlands this whole time. So... I don't know if someone in the KNCB has uh, missed a trick or, or if they just sort of weren't paying attention. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe keep a bit more of an eye on your um, Caribbean players, guys. I remember a while ago, uh, Daniel Dorham was another guy from the, the Netherlands Caribbean. Very handy, uh, tall left arm spinner. Um, I'm not sure where he's got to, but uh, it's a bit of a blind spot, I think, in the Caribbean players. And I don't know, potentially that's kind of a bit of a bias towards people who are playing top class maybe. Um, and, you know, it is a long way to come to play top class or if, you, if you're playing in uh, the West Indies domestic system. But uh, yeah, I feel like that's, they missed a trick there, with especially with their batting being a bit threadbare and, and Cardi uh, being a, a promising young batter. One slipping through the net. Uh, another uh, former Dutch colony turned nation in, in Suriname. We don't even know if cricket really exists nah. in that country. <laughs> no, that's that's a well, that's that's a whole podcast series in itself. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> if if you're in Suriname and you're a fan of cricket, please let us know if cricket exists in your country because there's there's conspiracy theories in the emerging cricket world. Let's put it that way. I think that's probably the the best way to to kind of sum all that up. But yeah, St. Martin, if you're in uh, yeah, if you're in that part of the world and you qualify for the the Netherlands, hit up the KNCB. You might get a Guernsey. You never really know. Yeah, one slipped through the net, unfortunately, uh, assuming that no one got in contact with him. Let's move on. Uh, some news that came through from the ICC this week. Well, quite a few things, actually, but we'll start with the first one that actually was announced last week, but at a time where it was really awkward for us to, to talk about it in great detail. Five women's teams... Uh, awarded one-day international status, Thailand, Scotland, the Netherlands, USA, and PNG. This was not a decision that was surprising in that 
you know, there had been announcements and talk that they'd be handing out one day international status on a conditional basis. So it, it didn't come completely out of nowhere. And this is, again, a ramification, a consequence of the World Cup qualifier last year that was curtailed due to COVID as well. It's an interesting one. It the, They've just sort of been arbitrary decisions that the five of them, you can see there's a, there is somewhat of a method in, in the madness and how they've been awarded, but also not. And, and Nick, I know that you're probably a little bit more vocal about this than me. To nations like Thailand, this is brilliant, and it does help them somewhat in, in what they're trying to achieve. But the fallback on this, and, and one of the things that we will probably miss out of all of this, is that qualification pathways in terms of Women's World Cup uh, 50 over cricket is thrown into jeopardy. Some nations would, would probably put their hand up and say that they were also... Uh, deserving of this one-day international status as well, so it it brings a lot of questions. Uh, this decision, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't. I mean, a lot of these decisions that we talk about the ICC making, they just seem so ad hoc, and there's no coherent rationale for it. You know, why did the USA get ODI status ahead of, for example, the UAE? Who, I mean, if you look at the T20 rankings, the UAE are, I think, in sort of around the 15 mark, whereas the USA is about 27 or 28. So there's, yeah, Nepal, Uganda, a whole number of uh, promising teams significantly ahead of the USA in terms of on-field results. And yes, we, we talk about the caveat there of the fact that it's it's T20 rankings, but then, you know, these teams basically never play 50 over cricket anyway. So how can you have a basis for the decision that isn't that? I don't know. It's quite strange. They didn't use rankings, obviously. They didn't use the teams that were at the qualifier because Scotland was there. What did they use? They, they, kind of a combination of that or just the vibe of the thing? You know, we, we want the USA to be there because they're promising. But then if you're doing that, where's UAE? Because they're, they're making huge strides in the Asia region as a women's team and as a men's team, but especially on the women's side of things with a, a whole crop of young uh, homegrown talent that, you know, if, if they had played a, a five-match series against the USA, they'd win handily. So... I don't know. Yeah, I, I think the UAE and, and even Nepal. I mean, if you're going for the USA as a growth market, Nepal seems obvious. And I know we've talked about the, the issues that the Cricket Association of Nepal have with women's cricket. But at the same time, yeah, I don't know. The, the, the issue here, of course, is that the ODI status is, I mean, it's nice, but what is it going to do for them if there's no actual pathway or, or structure of 50 over cricket for them to be regularly playing? Because we've been told that qualification is now done based on rankings, which... I mean, <laughs> this is always a problem, but it's especially a problem when you've got kind of a, a, a two-speed ranking system where on the one hand, you have the women's ODI championship teams, which get regular matches and will have a, a solid base to kind of work with statistically. And then you have all these other teams that aren't involved in that and have no guaranteed fixtures. They'll have to, I mean, yeah, okay, they'll play each other maybe a few times, but then it's it's very hard to move up the rankings out of that pack if they're not able to play against teams outside of that pack, if you see what I mean. So they're going to have to kind of beg their way to an, an occasional ODI here and there against higher ranked teams if there's any chance of getting anywhere on, on, on rankings to qualify for anything. And it still doesn't really make sense to go on rankings because previously the qualification pathway, the, the regional T20 qualifiers, uh, were kind of a dual-purpose tournament where they also doubled up as uh, ODI qualifiers, uh, regional ODI qualifiers. And so, you know, in theory, at least, all teams had the possibility of qualifying for a Women's World Cup, whereas now there's only 17 teams that can even theoretically qualify for an ODI uh, Women's World Cup. All the other teams are just completely locked out 
And, and of course, the 17 that are allowed to, um, you know, that, that have ODI status and, and are allowed to compete uh, includes Afghanistan, whose women's team doesn't even exist. So, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of strange things going on here. And it doesn't even really make sense that they've, they've binned the qualification pathway because, as I said, it was dual purpose. So they're not even saving money, but they're just shafting everyone for kind of unknown reasons. And it, it's, it's just really symptomatic, I think, of... Uh, the the lack of a coherent kind of vision or plan and and there's no no you know it doesn't seem like anybody's you know sat down and thought okay where do we want women's cricket to be in you know five ten twenty years how are we going to get there which teams uh, are we targeting who you know what sort of structures can we put in place to ensure that they will get better how can we build a market for this it's all seen through the lens of it being a burden and you know cost cutting you know <laughs> it's it's easy to grant ODI status gets you some good headlines uh, but it doesn't actually cost the ICC anything financially, whereas it actually takes some effort to schedule matches for them to get on the field and play. So I think there's a few things going on and, and not a whole lot of it's good. I think, you know, a lot of people in the ICC are trying, but there's kind of this overall, I don't know, just, just this drive for cost cutting coming from the top and, and they just keep trimming off something here and sort of cutting off something there and, and, and oh, we'll save a bit of cash doing this. And, and eventually they've just sort of hollowed out the pathway is so much that there's almost nothing left. And now they're back to doing stuff on rankings, which, yeah, is, is basically them admitting that they've given up on providing a pathway and just saying, oh, well, you know, members just work it out themselves, which, yeah, it's, it's not good enough. And it perpetuates this vicious cycle where richer boards get a leg up in the sense that if they can afford to host matches in their own backyard and theoretically have that home advantage, even just to hold the matches in the first place gives them a better opportunity in, in pumping those ranking numbers up. But I think from an associate standpoint, you know, not many are, are winning any financial competition, so to speak. So again, it, it's very difficult for anyone to make any sort of headway. I'm intrigued as to what happens if, say for instance, these five one-day international teams decide to somehow pick themselves up and rally the troops and almost make some sort of, I don't know, pirate-level one-day international quadrangular and, and pentangular series on their own uh, in the hope that it, it kind of builds each other up but what it ends up probably doing is it probably eats away at each other's potential ODI ranking to make any sort of movement to break the oligopoly that is uh, the established cricket nations in, in one day international cricket so yeah I mean if I was Thailand I'd be uh, ringing up Bertus de Jong and get him to uh, give us some advice on the uh, the best way to game the rankings and uh, you know who, who gives you best bang for your buck if you schedule a series against, say, the USA and, and you know, <laughs> beat them in 10 matches, does that get you up the rankings or, you know, so... But then, you know, the fact that we're resorting to this kind of shows how substandard the basis for the new structure is, really, that that, that is a viable pathway. Uh, I, I'm actually, I didn't think about this today. I, I wonder if there are people around who, who are consulted to talk about rankings and the potential permutations and potential situations that teams can find themselves in but to bring it back to the point it's a constant theme discussion point that we make icc rankings will never ever be suitable for qualification pathways for qualification for for global events and you don't really see it in any other sport and we make the comparison all the time as dodgy as fifa has been in the past they could not give two proverbials about their FIFA World Rankings in the context of qualification. It all comes from performance on the field, and yeah, exactly, yeah. You know, it's that it's that meritocratic 
function of qualification programs and systems that we just want to see to to make it as as fair as possible for everyone entering and to bring it into some qualification pathways that have been announced by the ICC. We'll we'll, we'll keep to the women because they've announced their inaugural uh, under-19 T20 World Cup qualification pathway on the women's side. Now, there was an interesting caveat in this from a regional standpoint for the USA, which I'll get to in a moment. Australia, Bangladesh, England, India, Ireland, New Zealand, Pakistan, South Africa, Sri Lanka, West Indies, and Zimbabwe all automatically qualify for the Women's Under-19 T20 World Cup. Now, there are Asia, EAP, Europe, and Africa qualifiers, uh, but there isn't an America's qualifier (laughs) because the United States are the only team in the region, according to the ICC, that fulfill all the requirements of actually putting in for the tournament. Ergo, they've automatically qualified. Uh, To look at Asia, Bhutan, Qatar, Nepal, Thailand, Malaysia, UAE, East Asia Pacific, PNG, and Indonesia... Uh, Europe is just Scotland and the Netherlands. And then there's nine teams in Africa competing for one spot from the region, which is balmy. And, and in the best way, this shows just how far and how fast cricket in Africa at this level on the women's side has come along and the men's side too. But it just shows, I suppose, the disparity across the nations. And for Africa... I've got no idea who comes out of that group and and I can't say, you know, that anyone's an expert in under-19s cricket in the region. I mean, a lot of those players would would never have been on a stream, have never been sort of in the public eye, even from an emerging cricket standpoint. So we've got really no idea how that pans out. But again, 11 four-member nations with the USA already qualified and the regional qualifiers. I just keep looking at that Africa list and just thinking... Nick, this is going to be ridiculously hard to qualify from. Whoever whoever gets that spot will and truly deserves it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy. <laughs> Nine teams, and then over over in the Americas, uh, Canada's so useless that the USA just gets in by default. <sighs> yeah, I mean, the Canada thing very very disappointing. I, I know I, I talked a bit about you know just very underwhelming efforts with the women's game that, that disastrous uh, regional qualifier last year where they lost twice to Brazil and yeah, it just seems like it's it's just not a priority and nobody really cares. Whereas the USA, especially with Julia Price uh, helping out with the women's side of things and and um, putting a lot of effort into the pathways and structures it's paying dividends you know they're getting young girls playing cricket you know picking up a bat and ball and getting on the field and that's what you want and it's the same in over in africa and the, the fact that there are nine teams competing in in some ways yeah as you say it's good it's great it'll be a, a fantastic tournament to <laughs> to watch uh nine teams slugging it out for one spot but at the same time you know you think is there some way you could just make it a little bit kind of more even. But then we're back into this question of, of whether to go with regional slots versus just having the best teams there. And there's, you know, there's arguments either way. Um, yeah, this this is one where I think the ICC, I don't know, I have a bit of sympathy with their sort of position because having the, the regional slots for under-19s means that there is actually that incentive for teams to invest in their under-19s pathway. And previously that was just on the men's side, but now it's uh, the women's side. And, you know, maybe Canada will see that, oh, if you actually put a team together, you've got a pretty good chance of making a World Cup. So, yeah, that might motivate them or it might not. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it, it kind of goes both ways with, with the regional slots versus just having the best teams. 
but yeah, gee, I don't know. I, I just think surely there's some way you can get more full members involved in qualification pathways, and that way you have a bit less of this issue in terms of, or, or maybe even you know some kind of combined qualifier across regions with you know where the USA there's only one of them. Maybe maybe slot them in with Scotland and Netherlands, for example, and that way you've got three teams instead of you know a default and a two-team series or something. So yeah, I feel like again there's there's stuff they could have done if they had been a bit more imaginative, but yeah, it's just kind of going you know, wrote by the book and not really thinking about it, which is, yeah, a bit frustrating. Sticking to qualification pathways and the ICC also rolled out their qualification pathway for the men's T20 World Cup of 2024. Uh, There was already a bit of news on this going back a few weeks now in terms of uh, moving to 20 teams, automatic spots going to the highest ranked teams. I think it was 12th and 13th on the ICC uh, men's T20i rankings. Uh, the top eight finishes from the 2022 World Cup as well. Just going through, eyeballing it a little bit, split up into a number of sub-regionals ahead of qualification playoffs in regions as well. There's three European sub-regional qualifiers uh, of eight, ten, and ten teams respectively. Uh, Two East Asia-Pacific qualifiers one held in tim cutler's vanuatu which we'll be looking forward to in august as well as one in japan a sub-regional africa a and b qualifier as well we see 14 teams competing in that on the pathway to uh, the t20 world cup so a few new entrants this year the likes of hungary romania serbia teams in europe for example who are making uh, their first appearance in the qualification pathway which is good to see i don't really know what to make of it in that in terms of the regional qualifiers after the sub-regional ones we've got uh, two qualifiers from Africa, one from the Americas, two from Asia, one from East Asia Pacific, and two from Europe. It throws up a number of really interesting hypotheticals, all dependent on who doesn't finish in that top eight uh, at the T20 World Cup in 2022, as well as the automatic qualifiers by virtue of ICC rankings after that mid-November cutoff date. I think it's November 15. So there are a lot of hypotheticals here. I'm interested to see what your take is, Nick, on on the likes of uh, split qualifiers sub-regionally in in EAP, given that, you know, seven teams are competing uh, across the two qualifiers. You know, there's only three, for example, in the sub-regional qualifier A, uh, Indonesia, Japan, and South Korea, for example. But Canada with a free pass to the Americas final a little bit later on is another storyline that we can talk about. What did you kind of make of of this pathway? It's... A little bit convoluted. There's no global qualifier as well, uh, which I think makes it probably a little bit more complicated for other people to follow going down the regional route, uh, albeit for a 20-team competition this time around. Yeah, I mean, this is something that's come up before and and the fact that they've got rid of the global qualifier I think is a great shame. It was one of the ICC's best tournaments and and it it made money for them. So it was, yeah, a very strange decision to to bin that in favour of regional finals. The only thing I can hope is that they're going to put a lot of energy into making the regional finals you know, big flagship events and, and it'll, you know, draw in a lot of viewers. If that's the case, then, you know, having five high quality events that people are going to watch is better than having one. But yeah, based on the global qualifier A that we saw uh, in Oman, where the stream was dropping out and, and all sorts of problems there, uh, you know, three cameras, I feel like it's it's probably going to be more likely going down that path than 
going down the the high production value global qualifier path, which is, yeah is a, is a massive shame. I think looking at the sub-regional qualifying pathway, I, th- I think it's quite good. You know, you've got a, a whole number of favourite teams like uh, St. Helena is is back for the Africa ones, which which is always good to see. Suriname apparently are fielding a team in the Americas, uh, so that'll that'll be one to watch. Uh, when... I take back what I said immediately before. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if if they actually field a team, or or if they field an eligible team, because uh, that that was, has been a problem for them in the past, um, that that'll be uh, interesting. Um, Suriname's food is delicious, by the way. If you ever get a chance to try that while you're um, on your travels, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, China is another interesting one in the Asia sub-regional. They've been uh, basically not allowed out of the country due to COVID restrictions, and I don't know necessarily how. Uh, how much that's going to change over the next little while. So it'll be interesting to see if they make it. But uh, yeah, Vanuatu hosting Cook Islands, Fiji, Samoa, uh, and and of course the hosts. Um, So you would think they would get out of that one, but... uh, you know, Samoa, a bit of a banana skin for them. Yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think it's, they've done pretty well with, with what they've got. And, and this is the thing. You know, the ICC Actual Development Office, they are trying. You know, they, they, they do what they can. But the, the problem is, ultimately, they're just being continually given less and less and less. And that, I think, is why they, they got rid of the global qualifier, which, which was quite an expensive event to run. But again, as I said, according to their own accounts, it, it made them money. So... It's just very short-sighted way of doing things where you, you, you cut things uh, because it'll save you a bit of money, but at the same time, you're losing a revenue stream that y- you had on the books. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how it all adds up, but uh, yeah, a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, it'll, it'll be, um, I guess, ultimately, it's good that there's 20 teams and, and that's, that's always, um, you know, more, more teams is always good. Um, but it just seems like every time there's a step forward, you know, and it just comes at a cost with the ICC. There's no, there's no free lunch, you know, there's not something where they just think, okay, let's, let's just improve things. And so, well, we'll We'll take a step forward here, but then we have to compensate for it by cutting something in the other. Yeah, so yeah, that's just always kind of a, at the back of your mind. But uh, overall, yeah, good good structure as long as they can make the regional finals uh, quality events to watch, which <laughs> is an open question at this point. And time has flown here, Nick. But just looking at a few rumors around, uh, and it looks to be as good as confirmed, although we haven't really heard anything from the ICC's mouth, Zimbabwe moving the T20 World Cup Global Qualifier B from Harare to Bulawayo. Uh, it, it it circulated. Uh, Birdis sort of broke it to, to Twitter, the, the cricket Twitter sphere, and that's where I sort of pricked my ears, but... After he did some more digging, it looks like it's been reported in Zimbabwe media. Hamilton Mazakats has come out and said that it's because uh, they get more fans and more vocal fans in Bulawayo than other parts of the country. And, you know, when you see how Zimbabwe are playing at the moment and the desperation they must have for Zimbabwe to qualify for the World Cup, I don't know if that factored into the decision. But the losers in all of this could well be the general public because... One, it's been very difficult to actually watch any form of streaming in Zimbabwe, not only from Zimbabwe cricket, but from the likes of ICC TV in events gone past. Bulawayo seems notoriously bad in terms of actually having a connection good enough to get a stream up and running in the first place. So are you as worried about this as I am in terms of actually being able to watch this? Because I think there's a very real possibility here that the only people that will get to see this are the people playing and officiating in it, which is such a far cry from 
the TV events that we've had for T20 World Cup global qualifiers in times gone past. Yeah, I mean, it's just like we were saying, you know, the the fact that they are swapping to these regional events, <laughs> it seems more likely they're going to go down the path of this sort of truncated global qualifier rather than, you know, making it a big TV show and, you know, the big dance as, as they had in 2019. But yeah, Zimbabwe, I mean, I don't actually hate the decision if it is motivated by getting more fans in because I think... You know, ultimately, if you're hosting an event, you, you want a good home crowd, and you want the the you know you want the locals cheering your team on, and and so that's fine. The problem is, as you alluded to, Bulawayo has a, a track record of <laughs> being very patchy when it comes to internet connection and you know supporting a stream, and you know just that Namibia series that we've just that we recently saw. You know, they they I think they streamed the first match and maybe a little bit of the second match, and then. The rest of the five-match series was just complete radio silence because they couldn't couldn't get a connection up. So yeah, it doesn't bode well. And you know the fact that ICC TV struggled to even get the stream going in Oman, which has significantly better internet infrastructure than um, <laughs> than Zimbabwe. Uh, yeah, again, it, it doesn't look good. Uh, and I guess the other thing is, I you know, Massacadza saying that it's about getting more fans in. That's fine, but. Yeah, I think maybe it's just about saving a bit of money because that way you're not, uh, you know, you're not ferrying teams between Bulawayo and Harare. Uh, you don't have to pay for two lots of hotels and uh, you know two charter bus services and, and all the rest of it. So I don't know if that's being a bit too cynical, but yeah, geez, I I really hope they uh they they um get some tech people in to sort out the stream before the tournament starts rather than you know getting a day or two in and and thinking oh why is the stream not working oh dear that's so. Yeah, I guess I am pretty worried about it based on uh, you know Zimbabwe's recent track record at at, um, at streams dropping out. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath as much as it pains me to say it, unfortunately. Thank you for joining me, Nick. I know it's been very difficult uh, with you feeling under the weather. Hopefully, uh, the wrath of COVID uh, does not hinder you too much, although I can confirm I feel like I'm still dealing with the so-called long COVID that that comes with it. So hopefully everything will go okay. Uh, Sending all of our best, all of the Emerging Cricket's collective best to you in your recovery. Uh, And as for everyone else around, thank you for listening again this week to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. For more news and events from the Games New World, make sure to follow EmergingCricket.com. But for now, on behalf of Nick and myself, as well as a commuting Tim Cutler, Uh, flying into the country. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your week wherever you are around the emerging cricket world.